Hi, everybody. We wanted to provide a trigger warning on this episode. We are going to be discussing true crime cases, and with that discussion, we will be including some details about rape and murder, and it could be upsetting to some listeners. Literally, what the frick? Okay, friends, welcome back to What the Frick. I'm your best pal, Nick. And I'm Katie. And here we go. We have such a fun episode planned for us today. We are diving in to the topic of amateur sleuths. What is an amateur sleuth, you may ask? Luckily for you, our dear listener, I have an answer. An amateur sleuth is a person who, having no professional or direct ties to the police or other investigative agency, stumbles upon and or sets out to solve or help solve various crimes, most notably murder. So these are folks who literally wake up one day, hear about a cold case and go, I'm going to be the one who solves it. (laughs) Katie, thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I feel like the idea of an amateur sleuth is so interesting to me because I've heard of a lot of cold cases actually solved by them, but also like how do you decide that you're just going to solve this murder? Like, how do you think that and it's crazy because these people are typically like journalists or like um, the one that I'm going to talk about, he was a filmmaker and it's a scary thing to throw yourself into. I think. Yeah, for sure. And the crazy thing is like, I think this dovetails kind of well on the trends episode we I did with Meg B. Katie, what were your thoughts on that up, by the way? Okay, first of all, I lost my mind when Meg B texts me after you guys did that episode and goes, so glad I could take over your position, Katie. I'd be happy to bring you on to What the Frick with Megan and Nick as a guest in the future if you'd be interested. (laughs) (laughs) Classic. That actually made me laugh. I was like, I would love to join you guys someday. But the thing that made me really laugh was when I don't think teens these days understand how truly insane it was that we used to be able to see snapchat best friends like when you guys brought that up i was like oh it's something i think about often like i don't forget that we could do that but i think about like i was a freshman maybe sophomore in high school and i think about all of the like like it ruined relationships it ruined friendships and like imagine like gen z in high school right now their like relationships i see from tiktok it feels like they're very toxic and dramatic and like just outrageous and i just feel like if that it's a blessing that that generation can't see each other's best friends because it would just be a nightmare insane truly insane um well i'm glad you liked it one of the reason I brought it up was because I think true crime and being in the true crime is a trend Mm -hmm. and it's certainly more prevalent now than it was. And I think part of that by extension is this category of amateur sleuths. I mean, there are a lot of prominent examples of it. So one is I'll be gone in the dark, which is a book by Michelle McNamara that was turned into an HBO miniseries. I'm going to walk through both the case and then Michelle's process uh, throughout this episode. Another one is Don't Fuck With Cats, which is a Netflix one, which I did not watch for a while because I thought it was dumb. Like I didn't understand what it was, but I will briefly give a synopsis here. The premise is this guy posts a video of him torturing cats on the internet. And the video 
starts getting found by people and they're like this is so messed up and a few of them people who view the video start connecting in chat rooms and forums and eventually try to track down who the guy is that posted the video abusing the cat so that he can be prosecuted for animal abuse in the process they realize he's about he's likely to commit a murder and then he does commit a murder and they are they already have all this evidence on who it is they go to the authorities to try to prevent the murder from happening in the first place the authorities ignore them then the murder happens and they're like oh crap and it's this wild man chase anyways fascinating story that i put off for way too long but don't fuck with cats as an example the example katie's going to talk about is a podcast it's called up and vanished and i'm going to let her get into that later and then another really prominent example is called missing maura murray which is a podcast about the maura murray case uh in new hampshire where a woman young woman was on the side of the road presumably her car had broken down or something and someone stops, asks if she needs help. She says, yes, please call someone. They run back to their house. And in the seven minute gap between when they find her, go to the house and place the call and come back, she's missing. Mm-hmm. And the car is still there. And no one knows what happened. There are so many theories about maybe she was, she ran, she didn't want to be found. Maybe someone else picked her up. Maybe who knows what happened. Um, but that podcast has been going on for over five years. And the case is from 04, so they must have started in uh, 2015 or so, so about 10 years after. And for five years, they've continuously just been entertaining various theories that people on the internet have about the case. They've brought their own evidence into it. So truly fascinating, truly wild that this is like become so mainstream. And the other point I want to emphasize is that this is different. Being an amateur sleuth is different than having a podcast about a true crime. So like you think of My Favorite Murder or you think of Crime Junkie. These are good podcasts that talk about cases and they walk through murders. They give you the evidence. They sometimes, if it's an unsolved case, will debate theories, but they are not actively seeking new evidence. They're not actively trying to solve the crime. Amateur sleuths do. They literally, after work, clock out and work, go to this essentially second job where they're dedicated to finding new evidence, going through forums and chat rooms to find theories about the case and trying to work through them. So it's a whole other level of being in the true crime. Mm-hmm. And I think it's so, I mean, I was going to talk about this a little bit with um, Up and Vanish, but it's honestly a little like disheartening to see like how far they get no I like how far they get but because why aren't the detectives in the towns that these murders and disappearances happening like it seems like these sleuths just come in and like solve them (laughs) and it's kind of frustrating so I do want to talk about that too actually because um like my mom's husband was the head of a cold case unit in Connecticut and it's like spent many years as a detective on this. And one of the things that like is important to keep in mind and like, look, I'm certainly no apologist for like police, but I do think (laughs) one notable thing is that police cannot do their detective work in the open. 
Whereas these people are because they Mm -hmm. have to. And one thing that is really interesting, and I'll get into this a bit um, in the story of the Golden State Killer, which is All Be Gone in the Dark, is there are often a lot of different people working on the same case because there are only Mm -hmm. so many prominent cold cases. And they will create an online community where they're trading theories and whatnot. So it it very much happens out in the open. um, Whereas police are trying to actually arrest the person because they can't arrest the person. And so they don't share with the public all the evidence they have. Um, But yes, there are certainly examples where the police don't find um, or, or police aren't the ones who crack the case. Like it is amateur people. So it is super interesting. Um, and definitely in a lot of cases, I, I sense the frustration that the amateur sleuths and people interested in the cases um, have. But at the very least, and this is especially true in the case of All Be Gone in the Dark, amateur sleuths serve to raise the public profile of a case. And that often is enough to put pressure on police to reopen an investigation. Mm-hmm. Um, so Katie, should I jump into this case or do you have something to add before we get going? No, jump right in. I'm excited. I actually haven't heard of this podcast. What is it? A book in HB? I haven't heard of this. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'll be gone in the dark. So I'm excited to hear everything you have to say. Let me tell you, let me tell you. So first I, I'm promoting, I guess, I'll be gone in the dark, which is a book like Katie mentioned and it was turned into an HBO miniseries earlier this year. Um, so if you have HBO Max, I certainly recommend you watch it. Um, it is the story of the Golden State Killer. And the Golden State Killer is truly one of the most notorious criminals in American history. I mean, Ted Bundy level disturbing. And the case really almost went unsolved. He started in 1973 as a burglar. And at this point in time, he was known as the Visalia Ransacker. He's in California, the Golden State. Um, And during this time, about 1973, 1976, so around three years, he commits about 120 burglaries. And I believe also his first murder took place during this, but it it wasn't like a planned murder. It was someone stumbled upon the burglary. He killed them. So 120 burglaries in about three years. In 1976, the Visalia Ransacker, as he's then known, moves to Sacramento and begins raping women. And this is the stereotypical, like, law and order horror film rape. Like, he stalks the victim, breaks into their home in the middle of the night, they're often single women, rapes the woman repeatedly, and leaves. Eventually, he decides he's not getting enough of a thrill off of raping single woman and he starts breaking into the homes of couples and so his objective at that point is to enter the bedroom of the couple he threatens them with a gun says he has a gun and ties the man to the bed at this point he often takes all of the plates from the kitchen lays them across the back or the stomach whichever way they're facing of the man lay it in the bed and says, if I hear these dishes rattle, I'm going to kill everyone in the house. Oh my God. That's insane. Insane. Drags the woman to the living room, rapes her repeatedly. There are some instances where he literally stayed for multiple hours, three, four hours while the man is tied up. And they say that um, often when they would untie the men, 
they their hands and feet were so numb they couldn't move them for hours oh my God. um because he tied them so tightly and he would rape the woman and he would flee there are multiple instances where he almost gets caught he's seen multiple times they have very good sketches of him uh there's one instance where he fires on and i i can't remember if he kills or not someone who chased him because the a neighbor i believe it was saw him fleeing and chased after him so i mean very close calls multiple times but this is around three years of this and they attribute i believe 50 rapes to him and he's known as the east area rapist at this time around 1976 he begins to commit murders and he totals up to six murders between the years of 1979 and 1981, or I guess it would be five murders in that time period. And then in 1986 commits a sixth and believed to be final murder. And he's known as the night stalker. Eventually in the same area, there's another night stalker who becomes known as the night stalker. And this man is known as the original night stalker and the cases go unsolved. So you have 120 burglaries 50 rapes and I should say 50 women are raped because he's raping them multiple times. 50 women are raped and six murders, six homicides. Um, and eventually I think the final number is 12 homicides. So a lot of crime and he's known as three kind of distinct individuals. He's the Visalia Rainsocker, he's the East Area Rapist and he's the original Night Stalker. Enter Michelle McNamara, who's a crime, true crime author She's worked on a lot of different things. She has a number of articles on the Manson family, um, but really becomes most interested in this person who is, again, these kind of known as these three different names. Michelle, this, I mean, we're talking uh, 30 years, almost 30 years after the last murder, really starts to focus on this around 2013, writes an article uh, in Los Angeles Magazine about the crimes and and coins the nickname, the Golden State Killer. This is actually really monumental for the case. It sounds small, but by combining these, it's always been the same person, but by combining them into the single name, the Golden State Killer, really helps center the conversation in a way and allows people to understand the totality of what this one person has done. 120 burglaries, raped 50 women, murdered, multiple people. So she combines the name, dramatically raises the profile. Her Los Angeles Magazine article receives a ton of attention. She's given um, a contract for a book about the Golden State Killer. At the same time, she's doing this amateur sleuth work. She's uh, one of the earliest people to hypothesize that DNA will solve the case, arguing that because they have so much DNA evidence and it ties the person, that that is how the case will be solved. She works backwards um, using genealogy and trying to uncover things. And I'm not going to get into the whole thing because I don't want to spoil the book or the um, show. But at the same time, she's updating a blog, which you can still access called truecrimediary.com. She's doing, I think, almost weekly updates on the case, what she's finding. And she's teaming up with other amateur sleuths around the country who are focused on this case. They start identifying actual suspects. You'll see this in the miniseries uh, where they, I mean, quite literally are like, we think this is the guy and they start to build the case around it. Um, And all of those things that happen. So 
her work over the course of three years. She um, starts this in 2013, like I said, and for the next three years is actively pursuing it, raises the national profile of this case immensely. HLN does a mini series on it. Uh, maybe A&E does, Discovery does. There are a bunch of them on Hulu uh, and Netflix, if you look, Golden State Killer documentaries and really brings a lot of attention to this. The police departments start to really refocus and buckle in. They're working a lot of times with Michelle directly to get more information. And then tragically on April 21st, 2016, Michelle McNamara dies of an accidental overdose while in the middle of writing the book. And it was, the book's eventually finished by her husband, Patton Oswalt. He's a comedian and actor. Um, the show King of Queens, he's he's in that. That's kind of what he's most known for. Are we and, sure? Are we sure she died of an overdose? Like she exposes this guy? Yes. Yeah. No, no, no. So it, there's no conspiracy around her death. It was she was dealing with um depression and stress and mm-hmm. took an unfortunately lethal like combo of of medicines. That's really um, sad. Jeez. It's yeah, really horrible. And She'd been working with this crime reporter, Billy Jensen. He and Patton Oswalt, her husband, finished the book for her. She'd written, I think, all of it, if not almost all of it. They just kind of put it in order, um, filled in a couple holes with police reports they could find, and got it published. The book is published in 2018. And months later, on April 20, I think it was 24th, 26, 2018, almost two years exactly after her death, Authorities arrest Joseph James D'Angelo for the murders. And after the arrest, police credit McNamara with raising the publicity around the case and bringing renewed attention to it. They don't identify any evidence that they say she identified that led them to the case, but they (laughs) do say she deserves some credit for solving the murder because she really put the pressure on them to stay focused on it. Yeah, Um, definitely. So it's an absolutely crazy case. I mean, he's found guilty. I, I don't, I, no one is getting executed in California right now. So I don't remember how that part um, gets flushed out, but really just an insane story. And when you watch the um, documentary, you get a, a very real sense that um, I think it was a former detective works very closely with her they really do trust her. She's pouring over the case files and the evidence. And I mean, this was a, a labor of love of like wanting to solve this case and she gets to know the victims. And I mean, they're over. One of the things that I think really fuels her is meeting the victims. And that's something that because he started as, I don't mean to say just a rapist, but he wasn't murdering every woman after he raped them there are so many victims who are still alive who can share their stories. And I think that also really compelled uh, people to pay attention to the case because there were survivors who said, yeah, I want this to be solved. And, uh, you know, because of the statute of limitations, they weren't able to formally indict him for the murder, for the rapes, only the murders, which is kind of, you know, unfortunate, but, you know, he's behind bars the rest of his life, mm-hmm. no matter what. So. Did, I don't know if you um, know anything about this, but did he like ever release like a statement or like, is there any like video of him like talking about it? Yeah. So 
There's a lot to say about him. So he was kind of one of those who, I mean, I, I think this is common of serial killers and people like this. Like they relish in the attention, obviously. Mm. And like one example is on April 6, 2001, uh, there had, or on a, I should say, let me back up. On April 5th, 2001, the Sacramento Bee, which is a newspaper, publishes an article that links the original Night Stalker and the East Area Rapist as the same person. And mm-hmm. a, he, on the next day, calls a victim and says, remember when we played, and hangs up. So he, I mean, this is almost 20 years after he's still torturing oh my God. the victims psychologically. Yeah. And there, you know, there were a lot of details. One of the like main notes about this is he's identified in part because he has like an unusually small penis. And this was like a very big part of the case because it was just very unique that the, it was able to prove that the rapist was similar. It was one of the things they used to kind of link them all together. Right. And, you know, so I just say that because there's, there's like an unusual amount of knowledge about who he is and, and whatnot. He's a former police officer and worked, you know, in California. He, I think, was in Vietnam for almost two years and, you know, kind of just remained dormant. And one of the beautiful parts of I'll Be Gone in the Dark, the book, the, the ending features, uh, this kind of paragraph where it talks about one day you're going to be home. She's like writing, it's a letter to the killer. And she's like, one day you're going to be home. You're going to hear the sirens and you're going to know your time is up. And I'm paraphrasing, but that's basically what happens is it's just a random day. All of a sudden, I mean, at this point, at the time of his arrest, he was 73, I think. And, you know, was married to the same woman that he'd been with throughout all of the, the crimes and the police just show up and arrest him. And, you know, it received national attention. Patton Oswald, the husband of the late Michelle McNamara tweets like to an article that's, they think they've broken the case. And he's like, I just can't imagine what Michelle must be thinking right now. Like, I really hope that they've gotten him. And it was a case that really consumed so many people and, you know, I don't see anything that's a statement, like, about Michelle, but, you know, he was, you know, he stood trial. It's so crazy to me. I think the most, like, mind-boggling thing about, like, serial killers, and it's the same with, like, Ted Bundy, but just, like, yeah. how how well they can fool everybody in their lives. Yeah, it's really like, scary. It's really scary. Like, that guy, um, the, I forget the name, the one that you did on our true crime one where he yeah just, john list <laughs> yeah like he just went and got married it was like yeah so normal it's just insane to me like it it makes me like so uneasy because this guy was mm-hmm. walking around for years with no yeah like no yeah. consequences it's just and, insane and he stopped not from what i can tell because of any remorse but because he got too old to really continue doing it i mean he was terrorizing people for more than 10 years between the burglaries, the rapes, and the murders. And one thing I do want to actually plug is how they solved the case, because this is actually how Michelle... Michelle was not able to do this herself, but she predicted that this would be the way they solved the case, is they took the 
DNA profile and uploaded it to like one of those personal DNA websites. And so they identified 10 to 20 people who are very, very distantly related, like same, I'm talking great, 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 great grandparents. Mm -hmm. And they worked with a genealogist to construct a massive family tree. And they just worked their way through the family tree until they had two suspects. They go to a closer relative of one of the suspects and take that DNA sample. That sample tells them that the person that who committed the rapes and murders was not as closely related to the person who sampled they had that they would have had to be, if that makes sense. So like, I don't know if it was a brother or like a first cousin, but basically they were like, the two DNA samples are not compatible enough to be first cousins or brothers or whatever it was. And so that leaves D'Angelo as the only other main suspect. Mm-hmm. And they arrested him. And then once they had that, they were able to get a sample and positively identify it from um, his garbage can, like when he took it out on trash day. They, mm-hmm. they took something from it and were able to run the sample. So, I mean, just absolutely crazy that Michelle anticipated this would be how the case was solved. And if you watch 2020 or Dateline, like you see that this is increasingly becoming how they solve murders because once you have a family tree that's even that is that far out, I mean, we're talking five generations out, they literally just painstakingly fill in the details until they're able to find people who are still alive, people who fit a profile, you know, some priors or something like that, who would have been in the area at the time. And, you know, it took many years, but they were able to do it. And that is just, I mean, it's really good detective work. It's insane. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's so crazy. And it, it crazy. really makes me sad that she wasn't alive to see him get arrested. But I'm sure she... But yeah, this is like one of those times when you have to get like sappy and emotional and be like, you trust she knows like wherever she is. Like, yeah, just I mean, literally devoted the last four years of her life to this case. You know, I'm like blown away. (laughs) It's so crazy. The series does. I must admit, I've not read the book. The series is very good. And the series quotes like a lot of the book. And I've read some of the articles, which I think end up making up the book. So Mm-hmm. Like, I'm definitely familiar with what she did in the work and the I have the book and I'm ready to read it. But yeah, just absolutely a crazy, crazy case. Wow. Dang. Well, mine's not that cool. <laughs> um, I'm sure it is, Katie. Tell us about it. Let me dive right in. Um, so if you've listened to Up and Vanish, it's a podcast with two seasons. It's um, the host is Payne Lindsay, which I literally love him. Um, and it's by Tenderfoot TV and they're actually um, they've had so much success with it that they are starting to do I I might be late on this I think they're starting like a tv show where they're gonna talk like crack some more cold cases but the two seasons I haven't finished the second one just because I someone told me what happened and then I just got like uninterested but so what Payne Lindsay does is he was a filmmaker And I think he did some journalism, but not to like, he wasn't a journalist, but he had like a background and he's from Georgia and he one day was like, I'm going to crack a cold case. So he picked one that happened in his uh, state, which happened in Osceola, Georgia. 
And what happened was in 2005, there was this high school teacher. Um, she was a former beauty pageant, like uh, beauty pageant participant. I don't know what, uh, beauty queen. Um, and so that was kind of like her, like that's like her identifying like factor. Like she was like in beauty pageants and she was a high school teacher and she was just like the small town, really sweet lady. Um, so she disappeared in 2005 and it was like, when I say disappeared in thin air, like it was crazy, like obviously shook the entire town. And it was really like weird in particular because the way that her house was when they like realized she was missing was her door was like, her door was like unlocked, but like there was no sense of breaking in. There was no sense of struggle. Her phone was left there. Like her purse was left there. Like everything was there and her car was like in the driveway. So it was like, obvious that someone had like taken her but then eventually they just stopped they just kind of gave up because there was literally no leads from the house um so basically the big enemy in the case if you listen to the podcast is the gbi the georgia bureau of investigations because they they worked on it for a couple years but then she they ended up declaring her dead five years later in 2010 because they had no leads like there was just absolutely nothing that they not that they could do, but there was just no um, like insight as to where she was, what happened to her. Um, and people kind of just, and they declared her dead. Um, so they ended up going to 11 years with no arrests on the case, no leads. Um, but so the most insane thing about this podcast is that Payne actually records them like in real time. So he was like, I'm going to try to crack this cold case. So he recorded an episode and was like, this is the situation. This is the case. And he was like, this week I'm doing this. Like, so everything was unexpected to both him and the listeners. Like he would like make a break in the case and like we would know the same week that he knew, which was really crazy. I mean, I didn't listen to it in real time, but like he did release them weekly. Um, so I think that's really crazy because like obviously that puts a lot of pressure on him to actually make progress on the case. What happened was he worked a lot with the GBI and with like the police in the town of Osceola. And since this was happening in real time and he was like releasing episodes every week, people started to become interested and they were like, I have information. Like he got a lot of calls. And it's interesting because in the second season, it was, they were like, I don't want to be, I don't want my name on the podcast. I want to stay anonymous. So it was really like, it, it was really sketchy too, because he was like, I don't know who to believe. And he would say that on the podcast. He was like, this person gave me a tip. This is what they said. And he would often like put the phone calls on the podcast and he would be like, I don't know if they're telling the truth. Like, um, I've heard different things about this person from other people. Like, he didn't leave anything to, like, mystery. Like, he told people every detail. And um, so, obviously, the podcast actually makes, like, a huge difference in the case because it brought interest up again. A lot of pressure on the people, the police of Osceola and the GBI. And so, what ends up happening is that everybody knew the two suspects at the end. And... It was kind of like, so the judge, because of the podcast, Tiny Town, two people from the same town. So everybody knew them. But so the judge ended up issuing a gag order so that Payne had to like stop his podcast for a little bit um, because he was, they were saying that the suspects weren't getting a fair trial because everybody knew all the information that Payne was talking about. Like it was crazy. Um, so he ended up stopping for a couple of weeks during it. But do you have any thoughts? I was just going to give my thoughts. Yeah, I think that's, that's crazy. And I think the real time component is so 
I mean, this guy kind of did it on his own, but I do think there's like a community of people who who work on these and his case was probably not as high profile. So there were probably fewer people. He was maybe literally the only one, but mm-hmm. I do think it's super interesting what the connection of the internet and like doing it in real time allows for like the collaboration that I think, and I mean, I guess he's collaborating with his listeners. Like that collaboration is just so crazy and really goes to the mindset I have of like, just have all the opinions you can in a room because the more people talk, the more ideas you'll get. And it's Mm -hmm. just crazy. Yeah, definitely. That was actually the first thing I was going to say is like how insane it is that he was doing it in real time. And like, it's just so much pressure on him because he did release these weekly. So, um, and it's crazy that every episode actually had a new break. So he was working like day and night to get this, um, get this solved. But I thought it was insane that once the two suspects were arrested and one of them is now in jail for it, but the two suspects were never even mentioned by the Osceola police. Like they had not even on their radar. It was so crazy because once I think a name was said to him and he was like, okay, I'll look into it. And then he, it ended up like being correct. Like, it's just crazy. Yeah. It's so crazy to me. But the other thing that I was going to say is like how dangerous this is and like how, like he moves into this town and he like, I don't know if he was staying in a motel or something, but he was staying there and he did the same thing when he went to the tiny town in Colorado for season two. But I just think about like, he's literally putting his life at risk. They know he's there. They know that he's talking to the police, all the detectives. Um, I just like, he had no idea the kind of backlash that he was going to get from these towns. And obviously people are sensitive about the case because like, it's a small town. Like that was a friend to everybody. Like she was described as like, a sweet teacher who like huge part of the community just like so like rocking to the town um so I don't know I think he was very very brave for doing that um yeah. and then the other thing I wanted to say about both of these like I kind of said this earlier but like I just don't understand how you wake up one day and you're like you know what I'm just gonna become a detective and solve this case I know and just I know. like overthrow the police stations in these towns like it's just so crazy and I then know, actually cause... do it this is like the part I want to emphasize too. Is like I obsess over true crime and like read books about cases and watch documentaries and whatever. But I like there. That's like nothing compared to the people who like write the books. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. and the people who write the books are not always like a journalist covering it. Like sometimes it's Michelle McNamara who st- stumbles upon it, or um, a guy like Payne making a podcast that's just about it and like doing it it's just so crazy and this is someone who has another job that they're doing from nine to five and then comes home presumably has some kind like michelle was married with a kid and it's just crazy to me and michelle in the in the series they talk about how michelle would you know take three-day weekends and get a hotel and like sit and do it and like this was one of the things when she ended up dying is she's not responding to Patton's text, but Patton doesn't think that's weird because he's like, when she's in the zone, you she's know, in you're, she's in it and mm-hmm. you know, she'll come back and then they'll do it again the next weekend. So right. it's just absolutely crazy. The amount of labor that goes into it. And 
you know, people's personal budgets, like Michelle was flying places and driving. I mean, California is a massive state, like driving huge distances and racking up miles and gas and whatever. And I mean, thousands mm. of her personal dollars on a, on a case. And like, right. yeah, she made it back with the book, you know, like I'm sure the book generated a lot of income for, for Patton in the series. Um, but like, no guarantee that that would happen, you know? And many more people do it and never write a book and get the reimbursement, you know? Just absolutely insane. And the thing too with, um, going back to Don't Fuck With Cats, which is interesting, is in that story, it starts as animal abuse and they're trying to find someone who abused a cat. Mm -hmm. And like, we know because we're true crime junkies that like animal abuse is the first sign of a serial killer. Right. But often, but you know, at that point he is not a murderer. Mm -hmm. And then they are honest case and he knows that they're looking into him and trying to find him. And as he graduates to murder, they're there and they're warning police about it. And they're, I mean, that documentary blew my mind. Holy insane. Just absolutely insane. It's so crazy. And not only like the idea that you are like, okay, I'm going to solve a uh, cold case. But then you go about like actually starting to like insert yourself in the case. Like the Priscilla police and like the GBI like knew who Payne was. And like, of course, Mm -hmm. with um, the other one too, like Michelle, they knew Michelle was a huge part. But it's just like, I don't, I don't ever imagine, like, of course I'm interested in all of these cold cases, but I would never pick up my phone and call the GBI right. and be like, Hey, can you give me information about this? Cause they'd be like, no, like he had to force his way in and yeah. they didn't like what he was doing because it was putting a lot of pressure on them to actually, you know, do their jobs, <laughs> which brings me to my next point that listening to, and I said this before, but listening to like these types of podcasts where cold cases sit there for years. Um, yeah. I, I was just thinking like poor Tara Grinstead, the girl in Osceola, like she goes missing and people are like, Oh, she ran away. And like, like you were said, you said before, of course they're working on it, but for them to go 11 years with no arrests and they were mad that pain was like asking them about it. Cause they basically were like, this right. is this case is close and he was just like it's not solved though and right. it just, he stirred a lot of like trouble in that town but like her parents the way they reacted to that like breakthrough in the case when they finally found victim um, found suspects was just like I feel like that was like worth it all because he yeah he did this for them and like it's just so sad because how do you how do, like no one no one up and vanishes you know there's right. always a always a cause, always something, typically a murder. But like, it's just so sad that like so many of these cold cases will never get solved. But hopefully, with our amateur sleuths and podcasts and books being written, they do all get solved. But it's just crazy to me. And like, when this was one of the ideas I posed for an episode like way back when we started this in June, and I don't think I intended for it to be as like positive. Like, I think part of me at the time was, like, not, like... You wanted to make fun of them. (laughs) No, no, no. Not, like, (laughs) mocking, but, like, kind of, like, a 
is this really good? You know, I'm sure someone could find an example of un- undue attention on a case like preventing it from being solved, but it really seems like the vast majority that we know about of these efforts like end positively mm-hmm. and or at least do no harm. And I just think like they, they well, really are doing like important work. Yeah, and of course with like a, a murder that happens in the past two years or something, that's obviously not considered a cold case. Like someone like Payne Lindsay coming in and be like, I'm doing a podcast. Like they're going to be like, all right, let us take care of it and then come in another time. But I think the whole idea of like the cold case is interesting because it's like people have given up. And honestly, like even having a fresh set of eyes on something, always, you always find something new. So it's like the same people from Osceola were looking at this case for the long, for that long and they were just they had nowhere to turn and like just to have a new set of eyes and like a new set of like interviews and just it I don't know it just is crazy I will say slightly off topic one of the things that I find so fascinating about the staircase on Netflix did you watch that no oh Katie this is the crazy thing about the staircase he the it's a woman who dies in her staircase and they suspect her husband of murdering her. And he's like, they're like, they're no one rich people are like well known for no reason. Like he he wrote some like okay novels that is sold. this real? Yep, yep. Okay. And you know, ran for mayor in town, but didn't really do well. Anyway, the second that this case starts, the when he calls 911, a French documentary crew reaches out to cover the investigation oh wow and he says yes and so from very early on in the case you are behind the scenes with the person they suspect of being a murderer like from the Um, beginning pretty much from the beginning wow and like you are seeing the pre-trial work of the defense team um you are seeing it is so it's insane you see the trial you see whatever and it just absolutely crazy so it is i think we often think of true crime as like going back and solving something that's gone unsolved and obviously in the case of amateur sleuths that's like the main example but Mm -hmm. then you look at the staircase that's like this true crime documentary where they're literally with the accused from the beginning and it's mind-boggling and every time i watch i watch the staircase i think three times now each time I come away with a different conclusion like it's just so insane I have to watch it so I think it definitely slants in favor of him not being guilty because like ultimately it's his family that's sponsoring the documentary in a way um and giving them so much access but I also think they raise enough of the points of doubt that if you do a quick google search you can unearth like that little bit more to give you a more nuanced picture so I don't know. I think it's just crazy. So definitely recommend that one too. True crime, man. What are you going to do? It's it's mind-boggling. It makes me like uneasy about everyone in the world. I'm like, are you a murderer? <laughs> like, it's crazy. That's, That's super too- healthy. No, I'm not. Like, but I'm just saying like, how do they, I don't understand how people get away with these things for so long. It's just so crazy to me. Like the two people arrested after Tara Grinstead's case, like you really sat there for 13 years before getting arrested 
and just like went about your life like and that's one of the most satisfying parts of the end of michelle's book Mm -hmm. is that epilogue which they read almost in full in the series and it's like she talks about the day when he's going to get arrested because the last murder is 1986 he's not arrested for more than 30 years he thought Mm -hmm. he was getting away with it oh yeah and she knew he wasn't like it's just so poetic but yeah wow oh my goodness well that was fun so fun love the true crime true crime you guys enjoy that yeah we'll be Um, back with some more eventually yeah we'll be back uh until next friday thanks for tuning in and we'll see you next friday bye everyone have a good week